0: So Genesis chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub had yet, be, had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth And there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havila, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Arametic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Jihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work at it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The second reading is right near the back. It's 1 Timothy chapter four, and this is on page 1194 in the Pew Bibles. So 1 Timothy, Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you this morning. Um, it's been uh, it's been two weeks for me. I've been we, our family's been on holidays, and uh, it's good to be back in the building with you on a Sunday. Um, uh, last week we concluded um, our series and. The Gospel of John. We'd spend, I think, cumulatively about twenty weeks looking at that over the two years, um, and I found that very um, that that was refreshing and energising to to spend that time thinking about the life of Jesus. This morning we um, changed tact. We kind of this is generally our pattern nowadays. We spend first term looking at um, an account of Jesus' life, and then we start second term looking at a topic. Um, Last year we looked at work, the year before we looked at Bible reading and prayer life. Uh, this year we're going to look at the question of how we use our wealth and our possessions. Um, and we're going to spend five weeks in that, this week and then the, the next four weeks uh, looking at this topic. We do this in part because we really we want to take what the Bible has to say and apply it to a particular area, help us to have a particularly biblically shaped view about this topic now the question of wealth and possessions very interesting. I, I'm watching a show on um, one of the streaming um, Netflix, I think it was, and they they interviewed all these couples. And what it was an American American show. So what was interesting was may, maybe this is an American thing, but many of the couples didn't talk to each other about their money. Um, they they. They earned their own money. They had their own accounts. I mean, they, they did every other part of their life together. They lived in the same house. They had children together. They went on holiday. They did all that stuff. But they didn't talk about their money. And I thought, that's very interesting. I don't know if that's how you operate your household. It's very strange to me because it's not how we operate in our household. We, we talk about um, how we use our money. We're quite deliberate about that. And uh, so it struck me as very strange, but I think it maybe is a reflection of the way we might think about money and our wealth and our possessions. I suspect this is one of those taboo topics, actually, how we use our money. It's one of those topics which people say, well, that's a private, it's a private matter. Don't know who you're comfortable talking to about your money, about your possessions, about um, the things that you're accumulating. It may be it's restricted only to like a financial advisor who has some kind of professional expertise in that area. Or maybe even there you feel uncomfortable. And if that's the case, you're going to find the next few weeks a bit uncomfortable. But I just want to say, don't run away from the topic. Uh, Because the the Bible has a lot, as you may have heard, that something like 2,300 verses in the Bible about money... Uh, Jesus taught 40 parables, 11 of them were on the topic of money, or very closely related to the topic of money. Uh, So Jesus, and and more broadly the Bible, doesn't run away from this. It has much to say, and my hope is that as we think through this over the next uh, four or five weeks, and then you're in your um, midweek gap groups discussing this, you will have formed a much more biblically shaped Understanding about your wealth and your possessions. So the starting point for us is what does the Bible have to say about this? Where do we start? And the best place to start is the beginning as, as is always the case. And the story of creation in Genesis provides us with a great opening to this topic. In the first chapter, God creates and every time he cre- pretty much every time he creates he has this repeating phrase. He says, there it is, And God saw that it was good. He declares all these things that he's creating good. There there is a clear sense in the Bible that the things of this world are not necessarily corrupting influences in your life, or corrupted, primarily. They start from a good place. God created everything good. And then when we got to the second chapter, which is really just a retelling of the... It's not a second creation event. It's just... Uh, The writer of Genesis retelling the creation from a slightly different angle, we see this come through again. This is the passage that Stephen read for us. And and here we see it says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Just pause there for a moment. I think that's really interesting. You see, he made the trees and they had a functional benefit, they were good for food, they fed Adam and Eve. But he also just made them so they were pleasing to the eye. See, the things that God has created are not just functional. They're not just there to achieve something. They're not just there to fill your belly. They're actually there to make you, to, to, to please your eye. They have aesthetic value to them. And that is a real thing. I wonder if sometimes where we only think of our possessions in very pragmatic terms. Um, maybe... This is particularly true for older generations who experienced the war. And so as they had to recover from the war, our positions were very much a pragmatic reality. And that's, that's understandable in many ways. But see what the Bible's saying? They're not just pragmatic. There is, a, there is a, It's okay to see beauty in the things that God has created. And God created beautiful things. Perhaps your inclination is to think, if something is beautiful, it's spiritually dangerous for you. But actually, God has created the very things that are beautiful. And then the the account continues. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it's separated into four headwaters. The name of the first uh, is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. I just stopped there because that's that's a really interesting little aside. The writer, there's so many things he can describe about the creation. But he stops there to say, this land has gold in it. Now, gold for us, we might think gold in the Bible is often the thing that's, that's associated with idolatry. I mean, there's the golden calf, for example, when the Israelites go to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up to get the law. And, and we talk about you know um, other religions create icons out of gold. And of course, God frowns on that. But here it is at the start of the story, and it's just something that God's created. And in fact, I didn't quote it here, but if you just read the next couple of words, it says that gold was good, which in Genesis is almost like a stamp of approval. Here it is, is something valuable, this icon of value and wealth, and God has created it. God has created it. And so the starting point of Genesis is that all things come from... They're good, you know, the wealth and prosperity... The possessions that you um, you use are good things. That's the starting point of the Genesis story. And, and we see it continue like in Abraham. Uh, he's, he's one of the key figures of Genesis. He's blessed materially. This is the blessing he gets from Genesis 12. But we see that it turns into a material blessing. And, and Abraham is an example of God blessing people for a very specific purpose. He uses the material prosperity of Abraham to let who he is shine out to the surrounding nations. And if, if you, might, you might be tempted to think, oh, well, that's very much an Old Testament way of thinking about the stuff we have. But look at the birth of Jesus. Here he is in the manger, and the wise men come to him, and what do they bring? They bring his, their treasures, and in those treasures are, of course, gold and frankincense and myrrh, the very things that Jesus is first honoured and worshipped with as he enters the world are these things that we might normally be very, very, I don't know, suspicious of at best. Maybe we've, we've assigned them to the corrupting influence. But God values, good, values beautiful things. He, he, there's a place for wealth. There's a place for your possessions. And Genesis and the opening of the Bible story says it's a good place, actually. But there's more to it than that. It's not just that God made all these things for you to enjoy. He didn't just make them for you to revel in. Uh, He makes it very clear in the Genesis story, that it's the Lord God who made them. All these things come from him. They're good, but their source is him. And also that he has given them to Adam in the Genesis story, but by implication to us, to use and to look after. But we never actually own them. And this is the important clarification of the Bible story. I mean, if I went out to someone and I said, God made made the wealth and prosperity that you enjoy, maybe they'd be okay with that. But the, the overwhelming message of the Bible is that it remains his possession. If you look in your booklets, in the sermon outline, I've actually quoted for you Leviticus 25:23, And in that, God says, The land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants in it. He's talking to the Israelites, who he's given the land of Canaan to, but he's never given it to them so that it is solely theirs, or it is really they are their true owners of the land. He always remains the owner of the land. And they always remain tenants in the land. And this is perhaps where the Bible starts to um, starts to test our our understanding of our wealth and possessions. This is the financial planner guy that from that show that I was talking about looks a bit like me, doesn't he? Uh, I did think that actually. It's not just because he's got dark skin and so do I. There anyway. Uh, this show is really interesting. It's got an name heading like how to, make, how to Get Rich or something like that. It's a really interesting show. It's well worth watching if you're, a, if you're a Netflix streamer. He's also written a whole range of books. And his number two rule for wealth management is this, Your Rich Life. He has this quite interesting holistic vision of the rich life. It's not just like what's in your bank balance. And I think I'm kind of with him on that one. Uh, I think that's an admirable way to think about some of our possessions. But... He he says, your rich life puts you in control. That's how we like to think about our wealth. It's something that we're in control of. We earned it, and therefore we control it. But the Bible is saying, no, 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 no. You didn't. You didn't get it. You didn't earn it fundamentally, and you don't control it. You don't have that level of control over your wealth and possessions. Now, this is where we start to feel the pressure of the Scriptures and and the biblical worldview on wealth and possessions. Because the Bible is saying, though you and I generally think of our wealth and possessions as ours, something we are primarily entitled to because we have earned, the Bible says, no, it always remains God's. You're in charge of it. You're given, as some theologians talk, the role of being a steward a bit like a financial um, manager is over an account. It's never hers or his. It's always the owner's, but they are responsible to grow it and, and, and make it flourish, and so you are too. But it's never yours, says the Bible. It's never yours. And, and before you kind of write off what the Bible is saying as overly controlling and domineering, just reflect on where you've got your wealth from and why you have it. And maybe our first thought is, well, I I worked really hard and I got a degree and I really did the hard yards as a junior and I climbed the ladder. Yeah, but there's a lot of assumptions there which allowed you to do all those things. Uh, You have skills which you just were born with. Why are you good with numbers or with people and the person next to you is not? You were born into a family who maybe prized education. You were born in a country which had a great education system which paid for your education to allow you to increase your knowledge. Imagine you were born in Sudan, for example. Suddenly your capacity to earn the income and the wealth to store up the possessions that you have is maybe halved or reduced by, by nine-tenths of your capacity as it is now. So the Bible's not saying something that's all that detached from reality, actually. Everything we have is a product of a myriad of factors well outside of our control. It's not enough to just say your rich life puts you in control. You are always out of control fundamentally with the stuff that you own. The only one who owns it genuinely and is really the source of it is God. Now, that's not bad news, because actually, then when you think about all the things that you have, what it actually does is reinforce this truth that's coming through the Genesis, which is that God is the great gift giver. Everything you have is a testament to this. God is the great gift giver. And think about Genesis. If God, again, everything that's chosen in the Bible is there for a reason. There's much that could be said about God, but there's only 66 books worth of it. God chooses to start his account of who he is and his work with the story of Genesis. And he could have just said, in the beginning, God created the world and then Adam and Eve disobeyed. But he doesn't. He goes to great accounts to to really attribute all of these things to his handiwork and then show how he hands that over to Adam and Eve. Because the starting point of the Bible is that God is the great gift giver. As you relate to him, he is the one who's given you everything you have. And actually, that's just an expression of his very character. He wants to give, James says, every good thing comes from the Father of lights. This is the starting point, right? And if this is the, tr- this is, this is the, s- the f- starting point of our, our understanding of our wealth and possession, then the question is, how do we receive them? If God is a great giver, how do you receive them? How do you receive them? And that's why I chose that second passage, which Stephen uh, read for us in 1 Timothy. It's the other end of the Bible, and you might think it's, it's divorced from the starting point of Genesis significantly, both chronologically and thematically. But it's not, actually, because look at what he says. Um, verse 4. For everything God created is good. In other words, Paul, who's writing to Timothy when he comes to this section, is um, reflecting off the principle we find in Genesis, that everything God has created is good. This is his starting point. And as a response to this, as a response to the truth of Genesis, he then says, this is how you receive it, with thanksgiving. Everything God created is good, and so receive it with thanksgiving, he says. Receive it with thanksgiving. So if everything God created is good, the way we receive it is with gratitude. With gratitude. It makes sense. But again, the Bible is going to make us slightly uncomfortable here. I mean, if I went out into the street and I said to someone, hey, you know that all the stuff you had, God gave you, and he just wants you to be grateful. I think most people would be okay with that. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm happy to be grateful. But he does say more than that. He says because it is consecrated, it's set apart, it's defined, it's, it's, made, it, it's given its purpose by the word of God and prayer. In other words, he's saying it's gratitude, but it's gratitude that is understood in the context of God's word, in the context of prayer. So this dialogue between him. You don't understand how to be grateful without a dialogue with God. You don't know how to show him gratitude without hearing from him and responding to him. And this is very important because we think, oh, gratitude, great. Well, I start the day by saying thank you, God, for everything, and then I just continue on my way. But what Paul's saying is, no, every time you engage with the stuff that you have, you have to engage with it in the context of who God is and what He's said. We um, went on holidays um, last week and we used um, a home that one of our family members owns up at the Central Coast. It's a beautiful home. We've used it actually. Um, we've gone on staff retreat as well. And uh, they very generously let us use the place. Um, they they don't charge us anything. It's a, it's a lovely house. They just have a few rules about how you use it, like, for example, you know, take the bins out, Uh, don't leave dirty cutlery in the dishwasher for the next unsuspecting victim, Um, make sure you wash the sheets and pack them away, don't just leave them on the bed, all those little things, right? Now, if we go there, we have a great week, we write them a card, leave them, you know, a $25 bottle of wine on the thing, and say, thanks so much for... But we leave the bin overflowing the dishwasher filled with dirty cutlery and dirty sheets on the bed. That's not really gratitude, is it? I mean, they they don't want the bottle of wine or the card. They just want us to empty the bin. And I think sometimes we think about gratitude to God as writing the card and putting the bottle of wine on the bench and then walking out the door. But God has very clearly articulated for us what it looks like to treat his possessions in a grateful way, acknowledging him as the provider of all good things. And so one of the challenges for us, and and I guess one of the underlying principles of this series is we want to treat the things that God has given us in line with what his word says. We want to interact with them the way that he calls us to. Why? Because actually that's how you show gratitude to God. You're not grateful to God by just saying thanks and then continuing on your merry way, dealing with your possessions the way you feel comfortable with them. No, we need to deal with them the way God has asked us to deal with them. That's our way of saying, yes, they belong to you, God. You've given to them to me for a while, and I want to use them as an act of gratitude and gratefulness for what you've done. So we want to really be shaped by the word of God. And in fact, that's why your gap groups are so useful in this. Use your time to shape your thinking. But the way you use your possessions is not by reading the Barefoot Investor. That is not the best way to shape your understanding about using your possessions. It is to read the scriptures together. To come before God in prayer. Now, there's, I think there's a couple of mistakes that we can make when it comes to using our possessions well, and they're worth articulating even now, and I think they actually may lie at, at the heart of why we find it hard to talk about our possessions. The first mistake is picked up in the Genesis account. Here it is, Genesis chapter 3. God has given them the garden, but of course, if you know the story, it turns bad very quickly. The woman saw that the fruit for the tree... Because God gave them the whole garden. He said, one, gu- one tree, right? Don't eat from one tree. It says, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. But then what does she do? She eats from that tree. And it's interesting because this is a tree that God has created. There's nothing inherently wrong with the tree. That's why he it says it's good for food and pleasing to the eye. Though the problem is that this thing that is good... God has, he's, he's identified as, a I guess, a, a symbol of whether or not Adam and Eve will treat God as God. And by eating it, they effectively say no. In fact, they, they move God from the center of the story of Eden to the side. And this tree and their desire for it to the center. This tree becomes more important. Eating from this tree becomes more important than God does. The gift becomes more important than the giver. We sometimes call this hedonism. It's a, it's a way of overvaluing the good gifts that God has given us. This is perhaps the first and, and the, the, the primary mistake that a lot of people make. They make these good things that God has given us but which should always be peripheral in our life, central. They make them the thing that shakes their desires and their dreams and their efforts and their energy. It's the first mistake. The second mistake we see in the passage from Timothy. There, Paul says, he talks about these people who he describes as being marked by Satan. He says, "...they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods." which God created to be received with thanksgiving. This is, pretty, is very strong language that Paul's using here. Very strong language about these false teachers. And he says their central problem is, again, the way they use things. But here, instead of receiving them with gratitude, they cast them aside. Instead of receiving them as a symbol of that reality that God is the great gift giver, they deny him that place. They actually do more than that they're actually using those items as a way of qualifying themselves before god as an alternative to the gospel See, so they're using again we think of the first example that overvaluing of items oh that's a clear example of how you can turn your back on god Yes, well, if you make your possessions more important than others, clearly that's, that's an example of, of turning your back on God. But the second one, asceticism, or, or undervaluing our items, right, or using them as a replacement to qualifying ourselves before God, is also a way of turning our back on God. It's, it's like saying, well, God, I'm going to please you by, by treating your gifts in a way differently to the way that you've asked us to. I think we we oscillate between these two ends of the spectrum. We overvalue or we undervalue them. Right? We use them for the wrong purpose. And either way, actually, the Bible says we're failing in our use of our wealth and our possessions. Either way. And I wonder if... It's, it's our tendency to go from one side to the other that makes us so anxious about our, our possessions. You know, we don't talk about them because we're worried that we're actually worried about the hedonism thing. So we, we throw ourselves to the other end of the extreme. Or we think that's how you're right before God, by just casting off all these good things. And so we feel guilty when we want to enjoy these things. It's actually because we don't have a well-balanced understanding of the, the good gifts that God has given us and how to use them that we don't talk about them. So as we finish, I just want to start us on this journey of how we get our view of our wealth and possessions right. And I think it's returning back to that message of Genesis that God is the great gift giver. But here is why the the scriptures are so important because what it means for God to be the great gift giver is not just found in the story of Genesis. It's not just that God made a beautiful sunny day, that God held off the rain today, or that God gave you a great crop this year. God being the great gift giver is not just that he gave you a family or he gave you a house to live in, as good as all those things are. The Bible tells us that actually, ultimately, God is a great gift giver because he doesn't just give you these temporal things, he gives you his one and only son. In fact, if you're unsure about whether he's a good giver, look at the Lord Jesus. Look at the central story of the Bible. Remember this verse, John 3.16. I've put visuals here just to startle us and help us to realise what's been conveyed here. God so loved the world that he gifted, he gave you his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Center of the Bible story. I was watching a show recently about a guy who's a police officer. He, uh, his kidneys had both failed. He was on dialysis, hanging on. And eventually his partner decided to give one of their kidneys to this guy a life-saving moment because he couldn't continue like he'd got to the point where dialysis wasn't working anymore and uh, you know i'm listening to the story and i thought oh i guess see, that makes sense if emily my wife you know needed a kidney oh, i'd give her my kidney but then the twist in the story was when they said partner they didn't mean romantic partner they meant his professional partner, he was a police officer. This was the guy he was on the beat with. I thought to myself, would I give a kidney for my staff team? <laughs> They're a great team. Jill's right front row. Right? I, I would give a kidney for my staff team. I don't know if I would. You think, Jesus. The thing that's so striking about the central message of the Bible is that Jesus gives himself for a world which is unwilling to give back the very things that God has given them in the first place. Jesus meets a world that lacks appropriate generosity with the most extraordinary display of generosity. But he's not just meeting the world. He's meeting you. You understand He knows you don't know how to use his possessions well. He knows your first inclination is to treat them as yours. He knows that your first desire is to use it for yourself, not for him or for anyone else. And he responds by giving himself for you. And actually, that is the key to reshaping our thinking. It is to get deep into this truth of God as the great gift giver the great gift giver who gives his son for us. And I think to the extent you believe that, like if you don't believe it, you will never really treat God's stuff God's way. But if you do, if you really believe that Jesus gave himself for you, it will unlock our ability to deal with our stuff appropriately. First of all, it will give you a deep assurance. You know, many of the reasons we don't deal with the stuff we have the right ways because we're afraid, because we, we're looking for love and approval, because we have a deep desire for the comforts of this life. But if you know Jesus, you find all those things most fully in Him. And you start to find the resources to let go of some of these other things and, and let go of using them for some of those purposes. And once more, when you start to follow Jesus, you see someone who's really using his stuff the right way. He doesn't use it for himself. He uses it for others and uses it for the glory of God. And so it is actually Jesus who is the key to help us to use use the wealth and the possessions, the property, the stuff of our life the way that God wants I'm looking forward to this series and the chance to think through this with you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts you give us. We thank you that they're a reflection of your heart, which is a generous God longing, rejoicing in the opportunity to give. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we come to know the Lord Jesus, you would unlock in us a heart of generosity which allows us to use the things you've given us the way you desire. And so we might be truly grateful to you in a meaningful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.